There we go. We're going to start now. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who love us, mankind, to the pure light of the divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of the gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of the blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well pleasing unto thee. Without the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and then all holy, good, and life-giving spirit, now endeavor into the ages of ages. Amen. Kathy, how old is Joe Corey? I hear he just had a birthday. You got to say which Joe Corey? <laughs> oh, yeah, um, big so, Joe Corey. Big Joe. I think he's 85. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. All right. If memory serves, we are in Matthew 15. We're officially past the halfway point, at least chapter-wise. It doesn't mean a whole lot, but... All right. Um, before we get into this, let me just give an introductory comment. One of the um, one of the narratives, one of the ongoing sort of um, not an action, but it's a what's uh, the word I'm looking for. Um, One of the situations, that's not a good word, but I'll go with it for now, that, that Matthew deals with is Jesus's teaching in relationship to what was then the Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, and what they would call more broadly uh, the tradition. And in many ways, you're going to see here, they call it the tradition of the elders. So there's this going to be a, almost a constant tension between not, I wouldn't say with the law and with the gospel. That's how some people have misinterpreted it. But the tradition of the elders, as it was lived at the time of Jesus, being lived and taught by the religious leaders, the elders, versus the teaching of Jesus was not to change it, but in many ways to correct it and to fulfill it. And so we're, we've seen that already. Can you think of anything we've already seen in the first half of, of the book where you have this conflict between what Jesus is teaches, what, what Jesus teaches and does versus what the Pharisees are teaching and doing. Anything come to mind for anybody? Jesus healing on the Sabbath. There you go. That's probably the most dramatic one. Um, and you can see where healing and the Sabbath really should be not in conflict, but in the time of Jesus, by the teaching of the elders, it was such a conflict that they couldn't understand that a miracle being done on the Sabbath, they, they thought that was somehow breaking the tradition. So we're going to start to see Jesus um, interacting more and more strongly. He already did in very powerful ways, but he's going to be even more stronger as we go along. And in this particular section, we're going to see very clearly what his perspective is, but it's not something that's confined to this section. So with that, would somebody read for us verses 1 through 9? Uh, 
Any volunteers? Father, I can. Thank you. Uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your traditions? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Thank you. If you get a hand just a second, I'm trying to help Susie and Rick get in. They're having trouble. Now having trouble copying the link. Here we go. Let's try that. All right. All right. Thank you, Subdeacon. So what do you see about this, this growing conflict between the elders and, and Jesus? What do you see from this section? How would you characterize it? It's like a, a power struggle between the Pharisees and uh, Christ as to who who will have more authority good and who starts the battle I, I think it was the Pharisees yeah so you're going to see here where Jesus is doing what Jesus is going to do he doesn't typically criticize them out of hand or on its own it's typically in response to them criticizing him so he's not picking the fight they are right so they come to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they say, why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? They do not wash their hands and they eat. They're the ones sort of picking at him, and they're going to pick the battle. Now, we know they're going to lose the battle, but they're the ones that, that start it. And how would you characterize his answer? Say that again, Father. How would you characterize their uh, his his answer to them. So they come and they they bring this complaint. Your your disciples are transgressing the tradition. How does he respond? I think he, gets, he responds the same way. He gets on their face a little bit. Say it again, Rick, and then and then Ricardo. We heard you both at the same time. So Rob first, mm -hmm. then Ricardo. I said, I think he gets in their face. Yeah, and how? Specifically, what does he do? Uh, from my end, I mean, I feel like he's doing, he's 
teaching them the same way that they're trying to get to him, like almost like a feng shui type of thing where they come in, they're using the law against him and then he's using the law back at them. Yeah. So we might call this, if, if Jesus wasn't the son of God, I said, well, looks a little tit for tat, right? <laughs> but what he's doing is he's using their mistake, their mistaken ideas, and he's going to show them how they're mistaken, not just in their ideas, but what they do. Okay. So he brings a subject's idea of God commanded on your father and your mother. And he who speaks of evil of mother, mother, surely die. But you say, and then he quotes what, um, what they were doing, which was not necessarily from the law. In other words, they're the ones really that are transgressing it. They think he has, he's going to say, well, actually it's you. Now this is going to have a couple of effects. One, because it's a criticism of them, it's, it's not going to dull the conflict. So Jesus is not really interested in making it easier on himself. He's going to say and do what he needs to say and do to bring his truth out. And the most powerful example is going to be how they are misunderstanding, not just him, but his father, their God. And he's going to point it out in ways that... Um, in some ways, kind of, you know, um, touch on, on sort of a, a nerve point. And then you can see once he gets to verse 7, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors you their lips, their heart is not as far from, we'll get to that content-wise in a second. So he takes their criticism, turns it back on them, doubles on it by saying, look at what you're doing out of your tradition, not out of the tradition from God. And then he's going to go even further to say that all of this is hypocrisy. That when they came to him from the very beginning, that was a very hypocritical thing to do. And then the worst thing of all, perhaps from their point of view, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. We've talked about in the facts. In many ways, he is the prophet of the Old Testament. Quotes Isaiah only it's a prophecy of, uh, it's a negative one of, of a negative view of somebody and he's turning it on them. And who are they? They're the religious leaders. Do you know what the context or, um, you know, what, I don't really understand what this means. You say, whoever says to his mother or father or mother, whatever profit you have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Do you know anything about where that comes from? Yeah, and I think I forget which gospel it, it describes it further. Basically, it's the, the leader saying, when you have uh, an inheritance, leave it to the temple, leave it to the community. Don't give it to your kids. So what you would have gained um, from me. Wait, hold on a second. Maybe I got it backwards. If anyone tells his father or mother. Okay, so sorry, the, the opposite. In other ways, it was, it was an inheritance. This is um, children supporting their father and mother but saying what you have gained from me is given to God. Does that make sense or no? Okay, I got 10 bucks. My parents need bread and milk, 
But the the synagogue, uh, the rabbi is saying, yeah, take that $10 and give it to the, to the synagogue. That's that's the better way. You don't need to give it to your father and mother. You need to give it to the synagogue. Did the synagogue really do that? So does anybody have the, um, it should have a reference to another gospel of another time this comes in. Is there a, a reference at the bottom there in anybody's version? I see James 2, 14, 18. No, I think that's it. Or John 4, 7, 21. Look up the John, see if it's in there. Although I have a feeling it's going to be the one where it's the inheritance, but we'll see. I think it's Mark um, chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Why don't you go there and see? Is he also delineating between um, the laws of God and the laws of man? So they're making things up. So kind of picking and choosing how they want to um, decipher what the law is. Yeah. And he's not picking on the law. He's picking on them for how they're abusing the law for their benefit. So again, the charge is hypocrisy, that they're saying, they're coming to him and criticizing him, but what they're doing is hypocritical because they're the ones teaching not to follow the law. She's right about Mark chapter 7, verse 11. Uh, the Gospel of Mark says, But you say if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban or sacred, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Okay, yeah, it's a little more clear in Mark. Mm -hmm. Where was that, Coley? Mark what? Mark chapter 7, verse 11 and following. Thank you. And I think the key there is, is, and he's, in, in mine, it's, least, it's, it's sort of phrased as a quote, but you say, quote, if anyone tells his father or mother what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father, unquote. It's, I think, the idea of, it's not that it's wrong to give to the synagogue or the temple. He's, they're, they're devising a way of justifying the giving of something that dis that sort of goes against the idea of honoring. So he's saying that that old he did not honor his father. Obviously, that's that's a transgression of the commandment. Yes, and father, this was also before there were any social safety nets for the elderly. Right. Does that make more sense, Kathy? Yeah, yeah. Um. Mine, my translation says, what you have gained for me is given to God, or the altered translation is, is an offering. What you would have gained for me is an offering. And you get that more in the, in the Mark version of it, where it's what you would have given to your parents, that's sacred. You can't give it to them. You got to give it to God. And so, again, the idea is they're using the law, or rather abusing the law, 
for their own purposes in a very hypocritical way. So it's better to give it to your parents. Is that the bottom line? In that example? No, the bottom line is you don't use biblical teaching to justify a selfish practice or a <laughs> self-interested practice. <laughs> but in this Orthodox study Bible, in the footnotes, it says, a work of service or devotion to God is of no value if in carrying it out, one ignores personal responsibility to others. Right human relationships are a necessary element of Christian devotion. Yep. Yeah, often when uh, we've been talking about different things our church might do for the community, people come back and say, Father, charity begins at home. And what you just said, Alan, supports that. It does begin at home. And my response is it just doesn't end there. <laughs> you know, and the reality is God gives us everything we need to take care of our own and to consider among our own the neighbor. Go back to the, uh, the idea of the, uh, the Good Samaritan, right? The man could have said, well, I've got to feed my kids this week. Well, God gave enough to feed his kids and take care of the man who had been beaten and robbed. Well, last week's gospel kind of takes care of that too, you know, regarding who you, what we're supposed to be doing, and that's taking care of others, whether in prison or yep. sick or in need of food and clothing, etc. Yeah, I'll tell you who struggles with this the most are clergy. Um, it's no secret that a lot of clergy families struggle because. There's the father of the family who's a priest and who's being told and who agrees with that his ministry is to serve the community. And you can see in this, there, there's, there's always going to be a tension of how do we take care of our personal responsibilities to our family, children, parents, um, also with our greater responsibilities. And I would say that as priests, as much as I think the I wouldn't say the popular idea, but a lot of people have the idea that, uh, you know, priests, like I come in at 10 o'clock, oh, Father, it must be nice, baker's hours, you get all the jokes, whatever. So I think the, the popular idea is that we favor our families, or at least ourselves, when I think the, 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 the data would probably show that most priests are not as good taking care of their family as they are of taking care of their flock. Um, and that's just a sad reality. But th these are tough calls to make. But I think the principle would be, not that this is the topic we just talked about, but the principle would be, you have enough, we have enough to do everything we need to do. We have to think carefully about it, think prayerfully, plan out carefully. Um, but it, it's really not uh, either or. I mean, there are certain times that family needs to come first. There are certain times that family can't come first. You know, if I'm in the middle of a, of a child's birthday party and somebody calls and there is an urgent situation at the hospital, I go. I can't say, well, I'll come by after the party. Like, and those are all things you have to weigh. But if it's also, Father, I need to talk to you about next week's committee meeting. Well, okay, well, I'll talk to you on Tuesday. <laughs> you know, not people always understand that. But um, yeah, there, there's, there's God never asks things of us that we don't have the ability to do. So it's not about do you do one of us is the other. That goes to the three there. 
Say that again, Kathy? Echoes of Ecclesiastes 3 there. There's a time to take care of the needs of your family and a time to take care of the needs of the parish. Right. You can do it like Charlie McCool and say that uh, you're on call. It's true. But, but, the, but father is always on call. Usually docs get a break, but <laughs> priest doesn't get a break. He's always on call. Right. Yeah, some people don't realize that my, my phone sits three feet or two, two feet from my head, and they'll text because they're up at 2.30 in the morning and have a question. <laughs> well, now I'm up at 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> Susie, were you saying something before? I thought it was you. Thanks, Father. I, I was saying it's so important for all of us um, with our family lives and our professional lives and our community lives that we strike balance. Um, for everything to remain healthy. And um, I'm wondering if you feel that there is less of an opportunity for that balance than say any other uh, professional situation that I know it was mentioned by, by uh, Rob and Charlie, you know, a medical doctor, um, journalists are on call, uh, police and fire, so on and so forth. There's a, a lot of that. And is there not a way for our priests to have that balance where, where they can do, you know, the same devotion for all their commitments? Absolutely. Without... I would say as, as a dogmatic principle, because if not, if we say, well, there's not enough time for me to take care of my duties, that's an accusation against God. That somehow God asking something of me that he hasn't given me the ability to do. We'd never say that, right? We'd never say that God is asking something of me that, that uh, he's not giving me the ability to do. Now, it's tricky. It's, it's not an easy balance. Uh, Bishop John, in, in the retreat I was at a few weeks ago with him, uh, we were talking. There was a younger priest in our group that's really struggled with some of these issues. We've all struggled with them, but um, an older priest uh, actually quoted Bishop John in front of Bishop John that we we were we priests receive sacraments in specific orders, just like everybody does. And in our case, we were baptized before we were married, and we were married before we were ordained. And his goal is that we should always start from that order of not just chronological reality, but importance. Um, the first vestment that I put on as a priest, when I'm going to fully vest for a divine liturgy, it's called the staccation. You don't really see much of it. You might see the bottom hem because it goes below everything, else, below all the pieces. But that staccation is the same thing as my baptismal robe. It is my baptismal robe. Uh, someday we will get a little more traditional in our, our baptism and chrismations here. For babies, you know, we even put a nice white robe on them or white outfit. Um, for adults, we tell them right now, we'll get some white clothing. We really should have baptismal robes that are basically the same piece of clothing as a staccation. It's, it's the, it's, it's the, it's the garment that defines me before I put any other priestly garments. In other words, I'm a baptized Christian, then I'm a priest. Is it always white? 
Uh, traditionally, yeah. yeah. In the modern era, you've seen people match them to their clothes. So you've seen purple ones and red ones, but traditionally it was white. I always keep a white one now because I like that connection with my baptism, not my ordination. So Doesn't I always wear a white one underneath, yeah. Doesn't that really apply to all of us? I mean, we were all baptized before we were whatever we are. Exactly. So we have to be, you know, if you want to be a good husband or wife, if you're married, you've got to be a good baptized Christian first. That's the best way to be a husband and wife is, is honor your baptism, live your baptismal life. And the same thing for me. If, if I want to be a good priest, I've got to be a good baptized Christian and be a good husband and father. If I'm not a good husband and father, how can I do Which is why... Um, I think it's in one of the letters of Timothy, maybe Second Timothy, St. Paul says that's one of the qualifications of a bishop. He's a, husband, he's a husband of one wife, and he's a good head of his family. Now, we haven't had married bishops in 1,400 years. That may come back at some point. But the idea of that, that that's what qualifies you, is you've already had your, your diocese of your family, and how did you do? If you did well there, okay, then that's a, a qualification to be a bishop. And if you haven't done well at taking care of your household, you're probably not a good candidate to be a bishop. I think it's a balancing act at all different stages of one's life, no matter what their career too. You know, I'm not taking anything away from all the demands that are placed on you, Father, and any of our clergy anywhere, um, because we see it, we know it, we've all, you know, been uh, part really recipients of it but balance is so important in life no matter what we do how whether we're married whether we have children grandchildren so on and so forth careers yeah yeah and i and i totally agree with you susie and what i'm about to say is going to sound like a disagreement it's really not so i want to say i agree with you first but as a preview to the gentleman at least the gentleman in michigan of this Saturday's breakfast, um, one of the things we're gonna talk about is that balance in the Christian life is a balance of becoming a Christian in every possible way. And that balances the rest of your life. <laughs> because, and I don't think you were saying this, but a lot of us can, can get this idea mistakenly. I've gotta balance my, my spiritual life with my, family life with my work life and and you know when we do that what we end up typically it was a very imbalanced life but when we balance it by saying i am first and foremost and always a christian that tells me how to balance the rest or at least how to deal with the rest not necessarily balance but really to to be all of those different things in the right way um some of you remember the movie chariots of fire and if you yeah. haven't seen it, see it. If you haven't seen it a long time, see it again. It's a great movie. But it was it was that athlete, Eric Little, who was a, a member of the Olympic team for, for England. And I think it was a 24 Olympics. True story. And mm -hmm. by being true to his Christian faith, he knew how to respond to these competing interests in his life. Um. But yeah, that's how we get that proper balance is by throwing away balance, being all putting ourselves all in for God. And then we know how to sort of be integrated people in every area, because I think especially modern life is very disintegrated. 
You know, you think of things that get disintegrated. You're, the word means sort of blown up. Like, oh, a bomb hit and the building was disintegrated. Well, in many ways, we're, leaving, we're living disintegrated lives today because we've never had lives where you could live um, so separately in different environments. I have a book on my shelf over here. Uh, I was talking to Michael about it last week or week before. Um, it's called The Patchwork Child. And it was written by a clinical psychologist in the 70s or 80s. I think it was the 80s. And what he was noticing in his practice was that kids were coming to him representing what sounded like a disintegrated life, meaning it wasn't integrated. In other words, they lived that patchwork. They lived a certain way at home. They lived a certain way with their friends. They lived a certain way at school. And their lives were a patchwork, like a quilt, not so much united, but just a, a unity of different ways of being. And I think our modern life, for all kinds of reasons we'll get into today, sort of encourages that. And so we live a certain way in certain contexts. But I think to get back to, to the point you made, Susie, beautifully, it's like when we're, when we're right with God, we do that right, everything else gets covered. Everything else is done the way it needs to be done um, in ways that we would miss if we were like others might say, you got to balance your spiritual life with your family and all the rest. Does that make sense? Well, I don't. It makes perfect sense. I'm in total agreement with you. But I call it this. I don't think they're separate. And we're not taught to make them separate, you know, through our faith. And I think where the balance is, is what's our foundation, our foundation. So if we have this, this foundation of who we are, what we are, what we believe, and so on and so forth, what we do, all those different aspects, that patchwork business that you're referring to, it, it, it all flows from the foundation. But when, when that psychiatrist or psychologist described it as, disintegrated he's he's saying or she's saying it's disconnected and we're being taught through our christian faith how to build a strong foundation so that everything we do everything we are is all flowing from that foundation is what i hope is happening for us so that it's from that foundation we can have balance and we've often said is it a hundred percent you know even in our marriage Rick and I have said, is it 50-50? We never believed that. It's 100-100. And then at different times when you start having children, so on and so forth, the balance might shift. The percentages might shift. But if the foundation's there, then we should be able to achieve maybe what you're going to talk about tomorrow with the guys or, or Saturday with the guys, you know, be all in. Yeah, that's exactly it. Beautifully said. Let's get into this, um, this quotation, because I think there's a lot to really pull out of this. When he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. What, what of this strikes you as familiar based on some of the things we've said about the teaching of Jesus as a whole throughout Matthew? Look at verse 8 in particular to start. The word heart stir up any recollections. 
it's almost like being in a relationship in a way. I mean, if you're dating somebody and you're dating, going out, you know, exchanging flowers, chocolates, and everything else, but either person is interested, or at least one person is interested in continuing the relationship, you can feel that. And it's almost the same way when we approach God. I mean, we can go to church, we can sing the hymns, we can read the scripture, but if our hearts are not in it, he knows. Yeah. You know, and I feel like that's what it's saying right there. Yep. It's like we we tell people, we talk to him what he wants to hear, but outwardly, but inwardly, we're not we're not focused on him. Yeah. And Matthew's sharing with us Jesus' emphasis on the heart that we've talked about from the beginning of Matthew mm -hmm. is so central to everything. It's and again, the heart is not the place where the the emotions are closely felt the heart is the core of who we are and as our orthodox teachers have elaborated over the centuries the heart is the core of the human person it's where god dwells when jesus says the kingdom of god is within you he lives in your heart not in your emotions not just in your physical heart but your physical heart is a good sort of example for it it's it's the source of everything else your beating heart is the definition of you being alive. It's what sends your blood, which brings all the nutrients and everything else. It does everything to keep your, your life, to keep your body alive. Um, and so Jesus is always going to be specific in Matthew more than the other gospels, but we're going to see over and over. It's the condition of the heart, not what is apparent. apparent what's apparent is important, but only in that it reflects what is at the core of who we are. I just pulled up some notes from Charlie's class on uh, thinking orthodox. And he talks about faith and reasoning. Human reasoning, logic, doesn't lead to theological truth. We encounter God on our heart, not in our mind. Yes. And that's from the book. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a big difference. That thinking orthodox book is really good at helping us understand what I think for everybody, even us Orthodox that were raised in a Western culture, our default is a Western perspective, not Catholic, but Western. And in some ways it is Catholic, Roman Catholic, where, and it's definitely Protestant, where the ideas, the concepts, the, the conceptualizations and the feelings are the core. Orthodox theology says, if you live there, that's actually what the father is called living an insane life. It's an unhealthy life. Your goal is to go from there and bring your core back to where it really is, which is the heart. And from there, you'll be able to understand thoughts, feelings, uh, impressions, things that come to you, perceptions. Um, and we, we pray in that, that Psalm, you know, create a clean heart within me. The idea is when our heart's clean, then we can see well, then we can perceive well, then we can think well. If your heart isn't clean, you might be thinking, you're just not thinking clearly, you're not seeing clearly. So the heart is really the, the focus. And we'll hear a lot about this as we go into Great Lent, that it's about the cleansing of the heart. You'll hear even in the, in the scriptures that on the same Sundays we're talking about where we start, start fasting, like we did this past Sunday, you know, it's the day before we, we give up meat as part of our, 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 our discipline. And what does the epistle say? Whether you eat or whether you don't eat, it doesn't matter. <laughs> now, he doesn't say it doesn't matter, period. Then you read the rest of the epistle. It's like, oh, it, it, what matters is the heart. 
the purpose, the intention, the, the understanding. So all that um, is going to come into play, not just in Lent, because Lent is our return, but in all of our, our, our lives as, as Christians. So honoring with the lips while the heart is far. That's, that's that difference you see. Um, and it's what, why he's calling them uh, hypocrites. Do you remember what the word hypocrisy means? We talked about this a long time ago. Anybody remember this? Play, play acting. Yeah. And you've all seen the, uh, the symbols for drama. You know, the, the mask with the frown and the smile. Because actors historically wore the mask. It wasn't acting based on the face. You'd put on the mask. You'd hold it, literally. You've seen this in, you know, Shakespearean dramas, things like that. Um, but the idea that you can present a false front that doesn't reflect your heart. That's, that's, that's the real dangerous thing. And really, that's only between you and God, isn't it? I mean, he knows, you know, but nobody else may know. <laughs> no one else may know. That's the role of your spiritual father. That's why having a good relationship with your spiritual father is helpful because he's the one most likely to know, or she's the one if it's a spiritual mother, because they know you, right? Mm -hmm. they, they've heard you give your excuses. They love you enough to say, yeah, this is where you hide. <laughs> this is where you act. This is where you put that face on. And they love you enough to say it to you so that you can receive it and go, yeah, yeah, I don't know why I'm doing that again. I'm just, you know, I'm hiding still, whatever. But yeah, you're right, Sam, in the sense that you could fool a lot of people. Meanwhile, what's the only thing that counts is the heart. And then he really ups, ups the, uh, the, the stakes on this. In vain do they worship me. I mean, think about that. Worship is the one, it should be the most important thing we do to place ourselves before God and fall down uh, before him. And they're doing it in vain for nothing. Teaching as doctrines, the precepts of men. By the way, if, uh, if we are accused as Orthodox of something um, by mainly Protestants, not so much Catholics, this is one of their main charges is that we teach as doctrine the precepts of men, or sometimes we're accused of following the traditions of men. Even saying that we have holy tradition with a capital T is very suspect because among some, and it's just a misunderstanding, they think that all these things that they see that they don't see as being connected to the Bible looks to be man-made, man traditions, the precepts of men. Um, it's really, unfortunately, just a sad misunderstanding they understand that all of this is rooted in the scripture because it's all rooted in God. It's all rooted in people living their lives in communion with God that has led to the development of everything we do. But it is a big misunderstanding when they see things that they don't recognize as coming from the scripture. Because they put scripture first and Charlie is teaching us in the Thinking Orthodox class on Sunday, that scripture followed tradition, that we had it, and it, it only was put in writing in the New Testament, like 30 years, was it, Charlie, after Christ's resurrection? 30 yeah. to 60 years? Where... Right, Susie, yeah, about 30 to 40 years where the first gospel was written after the resurrection. 
So for those 30 to 35 years, it was an oral tradition only. And Charlie emphasized too, what's emphasized in the book is that it's tradition in scripture, not what has you know become commonplace in the Catholic Church and so on to say tradition and scripture. Yeah. Well, I remember it wasn't uh, it was in my youth. I remember that as one of our Orthodox bumper stickers. Scripture and tradition. In- and, and, right. and yeah, which I think is a wrong right. idea, but um, we were trying to, you know, make ourselves known out there, but using terms that in many ways are foreign to us. Yeah, it, it's very interesting the relationship we have with the scriptures because um, it really is another divine mystery. So there's two wrong ways to look at it, and one wrong way is to say, The church produced the Bible as if the church came along and generated something that puts the Bible below us, right? Um, The other wrong way is to say that the church, the Bible is above us to say that we have to go back and that's the reference point, sola scriptura, all that. You can't really define it because both of those come together in ways that you can't really conceive, and that is that people in the church authored the scriptures, the church as a whole authorized the scriptures, so in that sense we're above, and yet what do we do when we process with the scriptures? We hold them up. They're above us, right? It's, it's only two, well, three things remain on the altar at all times. The tabernacle that has the sacrament to be given to those that, you know, in between liturgies, the sick, the homebound, um, the cross, the blessing cross, the it's the uh, the fulfillment of Aaron's staff, which leads us leads us from death to life, and the scriptures, and the scriptures are in the center. Interesting that even even the uh, the sacrament doesn't get the central spot on the altar. At the, at the center of the center of the center, right? you, have, you have the altar area, you have the altar table, at the center of both of those is the scriptures. So we have to really, all of us, myself included, be careful about having a place where we think we can put the scriptures, when in many ways they defy any, any really logical explanation. And we both, as a church, we produce them and they produced us. Father, could you comment on the last line of, of verse 9, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, as it relates to um, the rest of the um, the quotation? Yeah, so it's kind of all this, what we're talking about in terms of whose teaching is it? So a doctrine would be a teaching of God. Father Hopko used to say that in the Orthodox Church, we really only have two dogmas, the Trinity, that God is revealed in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and in the two natures of Christ as human and divine, and that all of our doctrines, all of our teachings come from those two dogmas. So in other words, the source of all dogma and doctrine is God. But what Isaiah is saying is that the people who honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from him, 
that they teach as doctrines, they teach as something that is purportedly coming from God, but is really coming from them. Okay. So the precepts of men are things that we would come up with. And the charge is not that we're teaching something, but we're teaching it as if it's God's teaching when it's our own. And so he's taking that quotation from Isaiah, specifically using that against them in their hypocritical teaching to tell people what you would have given your parents, you know, give to God, aka the temple and the synagogue. That make sense? You know, some people might ask, why does Jesus not just respond to their accusation? The disciples aren't washing their hands. In some ways, he's going to directly respond, like when they say, you know, you healed on the Sabbath, you broke the Sabbath. He's going to say, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's going to try to correct their wrong understanding. But on the other hand, he's very careful not to, um, to dismiss the law. He's going to also tell us that not one dot from the law, not one little you know, point um, will pass unless it, until it's all fulfilled. And so he's rarely going to, he's not going to say, like, forget the law. He's never going to say that. He's going to explain how the law is fulfilled in him. And then we'll have the rest of the New Testament outside of the Gospels and to some degree the book of Acts. But to some degree even Acts is and all the epistles are. How does this new understanding, how does revelation of Christ inter interact with the old? Some people might say, like, why do we hear so much in the epistles about circumcision and about table fellowship and about what you do or don't do with Gentiles, it's because of what was the law, but that led to a certain reading of the law at the time of Jesus, that he's going to try to not eradicate, but restore a right reading of the law. And so that's where there's so much of the New Testament is, is not going to contradict the Old Testament, but it's going to explain what Jesus says, this is how you read it, especially in light of his coming as a savior. Father, I've heard an illustration about the law and what we call grace. In other words, the completion of the law. It's kind of like the fact that uh, if you're in an airplane at 10,000 feet, um, if you jump out of the airplane you're without a parachute or anything, you're going to be subject to the law of gravity. You will fall to earth. But there is a law that supersedes the law of gravity, which is the laws of aerodynamics. Now, the laws of aerodynamics do not cancel the law of gravity, because if you believe that, turn the engines of the airplane off, <laughs> and you will realize that one does not cancel the other. One is a higher law, as it were, and I think the higher law here is, where is your heart when it comes to the love, obedience, and service of God? Yeah, I would agree with all that, as long as we understand it, that that was not absent from the law of the Old Testament. Agreed. You know, I mean, it's it's not coincidental that um, 
So today is, is Thursday. Um, in this week before Great Lent, we have two sort of practice Lenten days. So Wednesday and Friday, we not only have the Lenten fasting discipline, but if we were to have services yesterday or today or tomorrow, they are in the Lenten form. And I remember this from seminary because I had never seen it so dramatically experienced, but literally the color of the altar cloths, the vestments changed on Wednesday and Friday. Uh, certain candles were brought out or put away, put away on Wednesday and Friday. Um, but anyway, all that to say, and the readings, if you notice, if you follow the daily readings for yesterday and tomorrow, they're Old Testament readings. Why? Because during Lent, we're going to read from the Old Testament. If the Old Testament law was somehow to be thrown out, why during the time of year we're going to dedicate ourselves most dramatically and strongly to recovering our Christian faith and life, why would we not study the New Testament? It's all in the Old Testament. Everything is there. Um, Jesus comes and brings renewal and brings fulfillment. But it, he, he said, I'm not, it's not like the law gets thrown out. There's just a new uh, understanding of really, I would say, what God always wanted, but was really misunderstood, especially in the time of, um, of Jesus. But that misunderstanding goes on to today. And I think we've talked about this a little bit before, that I would say most Christians, at least in the Western world, even among us Orthodox, misunderstand the teaching of the gospel. We talked about this, remember, when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. If you ask most Christians, does Jesus increase or decrease the demands of the law, they would say, oh, they're gone. He paid the price. We do what we want. It doesn't matter. It's all grace. It's all him. It's none of us. And yet, when he gives that sermon, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this, and it's not a lesser requirement. It's a greater one. So, again, I think not understanding the Old Testament, if we're not careful, will lead us to not understand the New Testament. Let me read a couple of quick quotes here before we have to close up. Um, this is on uh, the accusation about not washing the hands. Uh, let's see. God is not concerned whether a man washes his hands before eating, but whether he has kept his heart washed and his conscience clean from the filth of sin. Truly, what good is it to wash your hands and to have a defiled conscience? The Lord's disciples were clean of heart and were guided by an untainted conscience. Hence, they were not overly concerned with washing their hands. They had washed them once in baptism with their whole body in accord with our Lord's words to Peter. He who has bathed needs only to wash and he is clean all over, as you are clean. So it's, again, understanding the deeper issue, the issue of the heart, and not letting that uh, be lost in the outer, the outer meaning. One more quote here is from St. John Chrysostom. Uh, and this is on the, the quotation from Isaiah. Did you notice that prophecy agrees exactly with what was said here and that it long ago predicted their evil? 
For this very thing which the Messiah now indicts them was also said long ago by Isaiah. Isaiah said that they despise the things of God, quote, they worship me in vain. But Isaiah also said that they place great value on their own concerns. Quote, they teach as commandments the teachings of human beings. Therefore, it was on reasonable grounds that the disciples did not keep these teachings. Jesus thus strikes them with a mortal blow. He does this on the base of the circumstances, on the base of their own covenant to which they had consented, and on the basis of the prophet who had intensified the grounds of the accusation. He does not talk with the scribes at all because they had ceased to accept any more correction. Instead, he directed his message to the crowds so that he could introduce doctrine that is high and great and full of phil philosophical insight. He took this as his starting point and finally wove in that which was greater, ever throwing out the observance of kinds of food. But note when the sequence of events this happens, he, when he has cleansed the leper, when he has nullified the, when he has cleansed the leper, when he has nullified the Sabbath, when he has displayed himself as the king of land and sea, when he has instituted laws, when he has forgiven sins, when he has raised dead people, when he has supplied them with many examples of his deity, it is then that he talks to them about food laws. For all of Judaism is held together by this. And if you take this away, you also have taken away the whole thing. So he beautifully sort of realigns all the priorities back on the direct commandment of God, which always goes primarily to the heart. And we'll talk, God willing, next week with, he's going to uh, call the people to him, and then he's going to really sort of flesh this out on, especially as it comes to what, what's defiles, washing hands, things like that. Um, Father Michael, yeah. Um, the thought of the day in um, on Antioch.org. That's Abe Howell calling me. <laughs> that if a man fasts either through vanity or thinking that he is achieving something specifically virtuous, he fasts foolishly and later begins to criticize his brother considering himself something great. I don't know that we do this today, but back in the day, did people uh, um, criticize people if they weren't fasting? Or, you know, the one, the one um, saying is, uh, don't fast and make your face look grab and you look weak and you're tired and were, were people very critical of people that may not have fasted? I, I think they did do it then. And I think you're being very kind and generous in saying it doesn't happen now. <laughs> I think I agree. I think that the sinfulness of the negligent is that they say, well, it doesn't matter. It's just food laws. It's just tradition, whatever. I think the sinfulness of the observant and the, the pious, you can see the hypocrisy, is that we fast, but we do so to um, superiority, to judgment of others, to um, self-congratulation, to all, all kinds of that. Why? Because any good growth is going to be, um, could be nullified. Right. It's I, I I've been batting about this idea in my head for a couple of weeks. 
I wonder if in some ways the devil doesn't take off and take some time off of the Orthodox during Lent. Now, I think he doesn't completely because I think we are, we can be tempted to, well, I'm fasting, but look at so-and-so put milk in their coffee. And boy, I walked in the restaurant and I ordered fish, but they had a steak. You know, I mean, we can do this internally. I've been noticing sometimes we do it. But I think sometimes the devil might say, you know what? They're going to go back to normal. I'll take six weeks off. I'll hang out with the Protestants and the Catholics. And, you know, we'll come back because Bright Week's coming. And, you know, we can get them back into their negligence and their, you know, uh, silly priorities. I don't know. I just throw that idea around. But no, I think it is a temptation for people who are trying to be more observant. I've, I've fallen into it. You know, you go, you invite to somebody's house and it's the middle of Lent and like they put, you know, you know, kid be in front of you. It's like, come on, people. But I should just say, well, thank you. You know, you know, I, they don't know better or whatever. Yeah. All right. Well, the hour has arrived. Thank you all. Thank you, Father. Thanks, and, and Thank I, you, we had an idea thrown out, but I think we should consider a, a weekend biblical retreat in Florida next January or February. Absolutely. I think that would be wonderful. That'd be great. I'll put it together. Excellent. By next year, the Coleman's house will be ready too. So <laughs> you guys could probably house the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Father. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everyone. God bless everybody. Father Michael. Bye. Yes. Uh, have you talked?